Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's start right away. Lots to talk about. I'm going to cover oil and gas with a new thought. As far as the commodity, I mean, oil's hanging in there. Obviously, there's some kind of a war premium. There's huge, um, uh, maybe $10, $15 a barrel. There's a huge amount of backwardation. So if you're in the oil business, you absolutely have to get your debt down very low to zero or not too much more than zero and not hedge. Who knows on the future price of oil? I think the, the fact is that the third largest producer, Russia, is still producing most of their oil. It's just it goes to India or China. It's like $30 discount, but it's still there in the market. So whatever oil goes to India or China, it places oil that would otherwise go there at a full price. And even though the Russians are getting $70 for their oil around the 100, it's still more than enough to run their economy which is important because they're cutting off gas supposedly because they can't get their turbine service to pump more gas through the Nord Stream line. But I think it's more a matter of trying to split the Europeans to reduce the amount of unity they've shown within NATO to uh, support Ukraine. As far as gas goes, it's really gone up a lot in the U.S. I mean, it's gone up a lot in Europe. The LNG had gotten all the way down to $20, and now it's back in the 40s because of the Russian curtailment. Thermal coal now trades for more than wet coal in the international market because it's a substitute for uh, for gas. Uh, really quite remarkable. In this country, it's been so hot, and the power consumption's been high because of air conditioning demand that the uh, it, it, Gas prices are very high. Power prices are very high. Thermal coal prices, say in the Illinois Basin, were $40 a year and a half ago. They're now $150. It just shows you how much power prices have gone up and gas prices. Hard to predict what's going to happen. If you look back uh, in 20, uh, gas averaged less than 250. And now I think it's pretty clear gas will average, you know, I don't know, $4 or something going forward. I mean, it's like, eight or nine dollars or even ten dollars now you go out three or four years and it's about four dollars or four fifty once again can't have a gas company with any debt because you have debt then you have to hedge you don't want to be hedged you want to take advantage of of this volatility here's a new concept which i may disavow this next week because i'll have a week to think about it let's say you own an oil and gas company and I don't want to get into specific names because they're about to announce their earnings. And, you know, I'm on the board of a couple. And so I, I just don't want to get into specific names. But let's say you had an oil and gas company that traded for $500 million. Let's say there's 50 million shares outstanding and they trade for $10 a share. Or let's say 25 million shares outstanding, they trade for $20 a share. So that's $500 million. And let's say your free cash flow at these kinds of prices without the hedging is 200 million and it only costs you 100 million to maintain your production. So you have 100 million of free cash flow. 
think of it. That means if you just developed, devoted the free cash flow to buying in the stock, you could buy in all the shares in five years. Now, if you buy in $100 million in the first year, and then there's only 20 million shares outstanding, then you'd expect the shares to trade for more. Maybe, maybe. I mean, we just don't know. So what is it attempting to do if you're attempted to do? And, and you know, 500 million is kind of a small-sized company, but I'm using it as, as an example. I think what, you, what you're tempted to do, just keep buying in stock. I mean, the people who believe in the business and believe that my pricing is, is manageable, that you don't have to, that you should borrow money, that you don't need to sell oil and gas in the future. Hey, you may have a heck of an investment. Now, if the thing is still worth $500 million at the end of five years, and there are only 5 million shares outstanding, your stock may have gone from $25 a share to $100 a share, even though the basic business hasn't changed. You're still got $100 million of free cash flow. Now, the tricky part of an upstream company is you have to make sure, and that's why the, the energy industry reports slower than the banks and the tech companies are supporting now, so you won't really have a lot of these numbers for another week or so. But the key thing is, are they spending well less than their cash flow, and are they showing some increase in production volumes? So you don't want to be in a depleting situation. You're spending half your cash flow and have some incline in your production, that those are the really valuable companies. And as the second quarter uh, are announced, we'll get into that. I'd like to switch over to the tech companies. You know, what Mike and I have been trying to do is identify companies that we think have a strong enough competitive advantage that even though the natural rate of growth in the economy is like two and a half percent, that these companies will have a fair chance grow at least 15% in volume. The way you want to measure it is not just volume. You want to measure it based on free cash generation. So if you had a company that that had $100 million of free cash flow, uh, you'd want to see it have $115 million in the second year and $132 million or something in the year after that. In order to do that, in order to grow at 15% rather than 3%, that's full percentage points, you have to be taking market share. You have to be a disruptor. And we spent lots of time on Tesla. Mike and I could be wrong, but we think that Tesla's so far along in making electric cars, and there will be plenty of electric cars and trucks sold for the next five years. So we're kind of enamored of that. We're not enamored at $750, wherever it is, our get-in prices at 500 Now, how do we get from 750 to 500 we get from 750 to 500 by looking at a reasonable estimate, looking back a couple, you know, a couple of years and looking forward a couple of years of what the company can achieve in terms of free cash flow. And then we're looking for 5% free cash yield. And with that, I'm going to stand down for a minute, make sure that I haven't misstated something. So I've turned it over, turn, turn it over to Mike for a few minutes. Then what we want to do is go through some of the larger tech companies, some of whom have reported now, and see whether or not we have, where whether we can make a case that we can get down to where there's a 5% free cash flow. Now, I talked about 15% growth. 
every time I said 15% last five minutes, go to 10%. Because what we're trying to do is with a 5% free cash yield and 10% growth, trying to achieve 15% return, which over five years doubles your money. So with that correction, I turn it over to Mike for the next few minutes to fill in the holes that I may have left or correct some of the other stuff I've said over to you, Mike. The only thing I'd add is that a lot of the companies we're looking at are some of the big tech names. And at some point you do probably run into this law of large numbers. And at some point you think that it would be harder and harder to grow, you know, in the case of Microsoft, nearly a $2 trillion company. So that's something to have in the back of your mind. But the nice thing about some of these digital businesses, they seem to defy some of those set rules. The other thing I'd mention is the nice thing about Tesla is their business is relatively simple. I mean, they primarily generate cash flow from selling cars. So doing that analysis on the cars was pretty easy. Disintermingling all of the parts of Microsoft and Amazon or even Google for that matter, there's a lot of different moving pieces. So it's not necessarily quite as easy from an analysis perspective. Yep. I agree with both of those. And on the law of large numbers, let's talk about that for a second, because that's very true. One of the reasons, think of how we've gotten interested in Tesla. We, back a couple of months ago, said, well, batteries are very important. Where is the technology? Where is the uh, know-how, the competence and whatnot making batteries? And the competence and the know-how and the reputation and the price, the margin, everything is basically with two Chinese companies, uh, CATL and BYD. Now, we should probably be more agnostic than Mike or I, myself and get ourselves to be in terms of saying, okay, so the company is headquartered in China, it grew up in China, it's managed by um, people uh, that are Chinese descent. What's wrong with that? I think what's wrong with that is that the tendency of the state to interfere with commerce. Alibaba had built up this financial business within it called Ant, A-N-T, and it was going to come public in one of the largest public offerings ever in Hong Kong. And the state government just stepped in I think they viewed it as being too much of a risk to their large banks. And since that time, Tencent, which is another one of the big Chinese companies, has some significant parts. They have if their cash flow comes from games. In China, when you develop a new game, you have to get it approved by the state. And they just said, we're not going to approve these things. So when you see things like Jack Ma, who is the founder of Alibaba, and time moving forth there was like out of sight for three or four months, apparently under some kind of house arrest. So when you see things like that going around and you say, well, look, there's no question that TATL has it all over Panasonic or all over LG camera and that the world is going to need more batteries, cars for uh, backup solar and wind. Still, it's hard to come to the conclusion that you want to <clears throat> acquire those shares 
the same way you'd acquire Microsoft shares or Amazon shares. Now, there are varying degrees of exposure here. One of the really interesting companies, both from a valuation point of view and from a ability to grow 10% a year is Taiwan Semiconductor. Well, if Taiwan became Ukraine to, you know, kind of behave like Russia, that has a risk. Another risk, I mean, the best performing of the tech companies in terms of cash flows and Apple, it's certainly more than half of their cash flow comes from iPhones and other gear that are made in China. I mean, they've made efforts to make them someplace else, including the U.S., and it's just not feasible. Foxconn, who's the principal manufacturer of all this stuff in China, has more base and more employees than anyone in the world. It's the largest employer in China. There is political risk in all this. I think I can have Mike speak for himself, but for myself, I think I'd rather keep looking for the company that I can get at or about 5% free cash yield that I'm pretty confident can grow its free cash flow 10% without layering on political risk like you might have with CATL. Another way to put it, one of my favorite expressions is don't stack risk. If you take a risk, don't take another risk on top of that one if you don't have to. But over to you, Mike, for your commentary. I ultimately came to pretty close to the same conclusion as Hunt when it came to CATL in particular. I couldn't wrap my head around the China risks to it. However, and I think this is pretty relevant because Howard Marks had a memo that came out this week called I Beg to Differ. And in it, he talks through essentially you could have two options as an investor. You can passively index, in other words, hug the average and you'll get average results. They may be slightly better or slightly worse, but pretty much average. And then you can do something unconventional and unconventional investing behavior results in either above average results if you're, you have good outcomes or below average results if you have bad outcomes. In order to have an unconventional perspective, one might come to the conclusion that, okay, all these China risks are sort of overblown. And that is sort of what Ray Dalio came out with earlier this year, kind of saying that, no, 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 keep investing in China. I think my conclusion is that I just don't know. And the other thing we as investors sort of need to wrap our heads around is at what point does this stuff go beyond our circle of competence? You know, it's okay to take it past when something doesn't really fit what you understand. So I, I'm still watching Chinese companies very closely because I think what some of them are doing just isn't going to get done in other countries when it comes to lithium refining, for example, for the purposes of using in, in batteries, it's hard to do that in most other company countries. China is okay with dirtier businesses. So it's going to be a little easier for them to do it. And they're going to have structural cost advantages. The country's putting in uh, a, a huge amount of nuclear capacity. So they're going to have a structural advantage for cost of electricity. So there's some dynamics at play that would say that it's a favorable place to invest. You know, the, again, the flip side is <laughs> the government can come in and change things. And ultimately as a shareholder of, of one of these companies, our goal is that the company grow and return capital to shareholders. So if the capital is not being returned to shareholders and instead being used as a tool of the state, that's not a very good investment situation. So 
all that is to say is I don't know. And I think it's something that we got to continue to watch. Right. So anyway, Tesla, we don't think the law of, well, Mike has to speak for himself. I don't think the law of large numbers applies to Tesla because we're going to have a lot of electric vehicles. I've said it before and I, you know, I repeat myself. There are 250 million cars in the U.S. Uh, there are 120 million households. So you divide the number of cars by the number of households, that's two cars per household. The more affluent of those 120 million households are very likely to have an electric vehicle five years from now. And I think the answer to charging and battery range and whatnot is have two cars, one that you for distance and one you use locally. If we in five years or six years or seven years, have a vehicle population of 60 million EVs. How is that going to divide up? I mean, if you just divide by six or seven years, that, that would be like seven or 8 million cars a year. That would be uh, like about 40% of all the cars and light trucks, that new trucks or new cars and trucks are delivered in a year. I mean, that could happen. That looks by far and away the largest now, or GM companies from overseas, you know, Volkswagen, Toyota, you know, have a huge amount of catching up to do. So I just don't see a lot of large numbers applying to Tesla sitting there with the capacity now of probably making 2 million cars a year. They can get their Texas factory up and their Berlin factory up. Microsoft, on the other hand, is not only is it worth the better part of $2 trillion, but it's large. I mean, it's large in terms of covering just about every business customer. That's one of the advantages they have. It's large in every way. And at some point, large businesses are harder to get to grow 10% than smaller businesses. But I think Michael's done enough work and I haven't, you know, I have, I'm trying to, to get more informed about Microsoft, but I think Michael thinks that five years from now, their ability to generate free cash flow, remember, not sales, not net income, but free cash flow, could easily, is likely, not could easily, nothing happens easily, is likely to be up 50% from their free cash flow generation capacity now. And so it is large numbers that gives you some cause for pause, but, you know, you might be able to assign Microsoft in that category. And when you pull Microsoft apart, as Mike's going to, you realize, I mean, it's up because people like, I don't know, their earnings release look a little weak to me, but I guess they like the uh, earnings call afterwards. But, you know, it does seem to be in the range of 5% free cash yield. So with that, we've got about six or seven minutes left. Let's Let's have Michael pull Microsoft apart. And we keep coming back to Tesla, but hell, our, our get in price for Tesla is 500. The stock is 700. What are we really accomplishing? On the other hand, Microsoft, if it can grow 10%, and it already is at a 5% free cash yield, I mean, that's something it can act on. So over to you, Michael. So Microsoft, the big takeaway from earnings actually for me was that their commercial bookings grew 35% in constant currency year over year. And the reason that's important is that's a sign of their ability to continue to grow at a rate greater than 10%. 
year over year. Their businesses are, they touch consumer, especially in gaming, which was relatively weak and not really that surprising given the st really strong year they had gaming in 2021. Azure was pretty strong. The forecast was 47% in constant currency growth and they hit 46. The one little bit of weakness there is that some of their consumption-based products were, um, showed a little bit of weakness. So that'll be interesting for Snowflake because Snowflake is an entirely consumption-based business. And I don't know if that's a read-through that you can say that they, that Snowflake might see slightly weaker earnings than otherwise. But all that is to say is Microsoft spans many different areas. And at least the way that we see it is that the business, the core business is one of the most resilient moats, if you will, in business. It's not likely to be unseated from that anytime soon. Google's tried it. Many other people have tried to replace the office ecosystem. Microsoft's done an incredible job transitioning to the cloud and their continued growth in Azure is basically just going to be flipping their existing on-prem customers to hybrid cloud or full Azure cloud. So growth is relatively straightforward. So it, in general, I like that. On a free cash flow basis, I think that the number we came to last week was $200 a share to $250, depending on if you're looking at today's money versus looking out to the end of the year. I think it's at 265 today. So you're not talking extreme amounts above fair value. Now, if you compare that to something like Google, you've got two companies doing two different things. Google has actually throttled back some of their CapEx. And as far as a free cash yield basis, and Hunt's more familiar with Google. So I'd love to get his perspective on it after their earnings yesterday. But I think if you look at the difference between Google and Microsoft, there's a little bit of a premium that you pay for Microsoft because one, it seems to avoid most regulatory scrutiny since it's been through a huge antitrust suit before. Two, the resilience of its core products, Office and Microsoft Windows, is better than that of Search, or at least that's the perception as of today. And Search is Google's core product. So objectively, Google is cheaper if you look at it just from a free cash flow perspective. But maybe some of that pricing difference is justified. I agree with my one interesting insight I think I have is that, well, first of all, Snap having weak advertising revenue really spooked people who own Google or Facebook Meta. And so I think the reaction in Google stock was probably kind of a relief rally. I do think that digital advertising, I'd be surprised if digital advertising overall grew 10% a year for the next five years. And Google, such a large factor in that, I'm a little worried about, uh, I suppose this is a variation on the law of large numbers. I'm a little worried that Google and Roads free cash flow 10% a year. So that would account for somewhat higher free cash yields. On the other hand, this is a really strong company. I mean, it has, you know, all kinds of intellectual capacity and, and their 
you know, they're just really excellent. We're going to see Amazon earnings. Just a parting thought, you know, Amazon Web Services is kind of number one and Azure is number two, and then Google has a pretty significant cloud effort and they're number three. The interesting thing about Amazon Web Services compared to Microsoft, this is something Mike is very attuned to and mentioned is Microsoft has mostly business customers and they're in effect converting those business relationships over into being Azure customers. Amazon Web Services has more, you know, like they distribute Netflix and these other services from their history. They're not as plugged in with uh, business users as Microsoft is because of the Microsoft Office product. So it does give Azure, I think, a little bit of an edge. There's no question that Amazon Web Services has got a lead and may be able to keep the lead, but Azure has probably closed the gap in the last few years. And that would be another argument for Microsoft meeting that test of trading at a 5% free cash flow, but being able to expand its free cash flow per year by 10% a year. With that, I think we've run through our 30 minutes. Everyone be well and stay healthy. We'll obviously have more to care about on the Wednesday. We'll continue to focus in on this set of parameters. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.